0: Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk.
1: You're very welcome along to News Talk's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about our last programme, discussing commuting and congestion right across the country. You can still listen back to the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or on the Go Live app and as always you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan Well coming up today we'll be discussing the law and anonymity we'll be looking at the protections offered to victims and the accused and asking should anonymity be offered to those who carried out the most heinous crimes Joining me in studio to discuss today our panel the CEO of One and Four Maeve Lewis also solicitor Michael Finucane and on the line we're joined from the University of Limerick by law professor Shane Kilcommons, My thanks to you all for joining us today. Shane, I might maybe start with yourself. Um, perhaps, could you just explain what anonymity means in a legal sense and who it applies to?
2: Andrea, the the starting point is, is to acknowledge that our justice system under Article 34 of the Constitution and under Article 6 of the European Convention of Human Rights is designed to be in public. And there are obviously very good reasons for that. Speaks to transparency. It speaks to openness around the integrity of decision making and how we apply procedural and substantive rules. And so, it obviously respects the the rule of law. Um, And you can obviously consider that you know what would be the converse of that be that decisions were made in secret, lack of commentary, and uh, that would lead obviously to a potential for corruption and so on. So, our our court system in general is uh, justice is is done and seen to be done in public, but there are. Three key exceptions to that. And so one obviously relates to in-camera hearings where in certain circumstances the judge in the court will remove uh, all members of the public and it will be confined to relevant parties, including bona fide members of the press. And a second uh, exception then, it relates to what might be called reporting restrictions and and that speaks to fairness of procedures. And then the third area then is the one that, I think that what you were specifically asking me about, which is anonymity, and that speaks to, to, to privacy rights, and it arises in certain circumstances. I mean, the most obvious examples are under Sections 7 and 8 of the Criminal Law Rape Act 1981. The Section 7 provides anonymity for complainants in, in, in rape cases, and Section 8 then provides an, anonymity for the accused party until a conviction has been uh, recorded or that verdict mm. has been returned, there that that's the type of anonymity provisions that exist. There are more than simply those two provisions, but um, it it started with those provisions. It's I, likely unusual in the sense that in Northern Ireland and in England and Wales, the uh, anonymity provision doesn't apply to to those accused of a crime um, in, in those types of cases. But it does apply here. Okay, uh, It's th- currently under review.
1: Th- that's something we, we might discuss in a little bit more detail just with regards to uh, Northern Ireland um, a little bit later in the programme, Shane. But just one other point. You've mentioned in relation to um, sex assault or rape cases, but also children under the Children's Act are afforded the um, the, the, the same anonymity as well.
2: And that's correct. I actually, I should have pointed that out earlier. So, under the Children Act 2001, uh, Section 93 in particular, but also Section 252, they apply and require that in you know an, any proceedings which concern a, a child, that uh, an anonymity uh, will be provided as well. And again, you know, we talk about privacy rights, but that also speaks to uh, welfare's concerns and. Uh, much of our criminal justice system as it relates to children is, is different from, say, the adult system. And so you can see that in respect of defences that it can apply. For example, a child under the age of 12 ordinarily can't be uh, tried or convicted of an offence. There are certain exceptions. And anybody, any child under 14, you know, a uh, case can only proceed um, with the consent of the DPP. There are certain procedures that apply around arrest and detention uh, for children. There's also spent conviction provisions for children, and punishment provisions that, that apply to children are also different from uh, uh, you know adult offenses and the idea is as much as possible to 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 keep children um out to protect them almost from the system itself and to, to certainly keep them out of of, of of prisons and detention centers um that, that,
1: that, mm. that we have in this country. OK. Shin, d- do stay with us. I'm, I know you're on the line from UL today. Just in a nutshell, uh, Michael Finucane, I know you're obviously working, um, practising as a solicitor, but, I mean, is it fair for the public to kind of just take that We're talking about children, people complaining of a rape or sexual assault and people accused of said rape or sexual assault. Uh, really, in a nutshell, that's kind of what anonymity covers.
0: Yes, because those people Those different categories of participants in the uh, criminal justice system um, are deemed to occupy a particular space where social policy and public policy concerns impact on the way the law is operated. Uh, We have a, a view in society that children below a certain age don't appreciate the consequences of their actions and therefore... Cannot be held to the same standard as an adult in all cases. Um, it is perhaps worrying that uh, the frequency with which younger and younger children are being charged with ever more serious offences um, is appearing in the in the in the media as reported from mm. the courts. But I mean that simply speaks to an evolution in society. I think. And it's it's the same with uh, sexual offences, including serious sexual offences like rape. The the landscape is changing. Um, it's being influenced by many different factors, um, not least the uh, unstoppable uh, effect it seems of, of social media. And uh, we are in many ways uh, still coming to grips with that.
1: Okay. Maeve Lewis, who's the CEO of Victim Representative Group 1 and 4, thanks for for joining us as well today. As Shane pointed out, and, and Michael as well, I suppose, you know, Irish law has kind of a, a long established practice of demanding the complete anonymity and we'll start maybe perhaps today with um, with rape cases before conviction. On the face of it, it's probably an, uh, it's not a controversial system, would you agree? Uh,
3: no, it's not a controversial system and for our clients, who would all be adult survivors of child sexual abuse, Um, who increasingly engage with the criminal justice system, one of the, I suppose, big concerns before they make that decision is, will everybody know about this? Now, you know, I would love a situation to evolve in society where somebody who has been raped or sexually abused would have the same sense of outrage and victimhood that somebody whose bag has been snatched or somebody whose house has been burgled. But we have to accept there is still a lot of shame and stigma attached two crimes of sexual abuse were on the part of the victim and that for many people, if there wasn't anonymity, they would never, ever consider um, engaging with the criminal justice system. And so few people do anyway. A problem, I suppose, in Ireland is that outside of the big cities, um, we're a very small society. So if there is a, a rape case or a sexual violence case, very often the entire town or the entire Mm. parish know exactly who's involved Uh, so that is an issue so sometimes anonymity while it's protected by the courts it cannot be protected and um, as Michael mentioned of course there is social media as well I think a lot of uh, sexual assault, rape victims were frightened by what happened in the Belfast rape trial last year and assumed that uh, that same type of coverage and so on would happen in Ireland, in the, in the mm. Republic. Uh, that can't happen because uh, trials of sexual offences take place in camera. So the general public would not be allowed in to go up and pruriently listen to what's going on. Um, it, as Jane said, there will be uh, bona fide members of the press and perhaps a uh, support person for the, the victim but that would be the extent of it.
1: Can I just bring you back in perhaps Shane Cummins, just on that issue that was mentioned a little bit earlier um, with regards to crossing jurisdiction and for instance what happens in Northern Ireland Maeve Lewis mentioned for instance the um, the, the Belfast rape trial relating to Paddy Jackson and Stuart Holding, both um, we should say acquitted as well but the, the complainant's identity was protected by law but the identity of the defendants along with their photographs was quite literally uh, placed and splashed on the front of many newspapers right across um, various different jurisdictions while that trial took place. Just explain to people, Shane, the difference between what happens in the Irish court system and the court systems then in Northern Ireland.
2: One of the key debates that's taking place at the moment, Andrea, is is to whether or not um, Section 8 should still apply in Ireland. Now, in, in Northern Ireland and in England and Wales, um, The argument is that uh, the accused should not have this anonymity and the argument being that um, it's not a question of equality between the accused and the complainant, that the comparator for an accused of a sexual offence should be similar to that of an accused um, of murder, for example, and you don't have an anonymity um, as an accused party uh, for an offence such as murder, so why then would you have it for a sexual offence, um, now in contrast, the counter argument is, and um, and actually, uh, victims' groups as well, such as the RCNI and so on, uh, they would lean in this direction. Um, mm. So the argument is that you know there's a, a real stigma also attached with an allegation of a sexual offence, and that it can, in many respects, result in a de facto life sentence, and that uh, you know, that the acquittal itself may not actually get as much attention as the allegations Mm. that have been made and particularly now uh, through the use of social media and so on that uh, you may have already alluded to that that can be very difficult for complainants but it can also be very, very difficult for accused parties. Absolutely,
1: yeah. Um, and, in, and, and, and in particular as well, just Michael, to bring you in on that, I mean, because you, you mentioned social media a little bit earlier on, but I mean, in particular where somebody is accused, brought before the courts of, you know, a very serious sexual offence or a rape crime to be found not guilty, I mean, it can often be a life sentence in itself, carrying the the, the association of that, you know, allegation along with you.
0: Yes, well, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the peculiar thing about Uh, the prosecution of serious sexual offenses, uh, including rape, is that you have an almost unique uh, intersection between uh, social policy, social morals, people's general hang-ups about private sexual behavior and the law and the legal system. And the difficulty with uh, these types of prosecutions and and these types of offenses is that the detail uh, is almost unavoidably uh, prurient and invasive and unsettling for everyone uh, involved. And as a society, it has to be said that we do take some uh, unhealthy interest in knowing more and more detail about that which people are uncomfortable discussing. And, you know, you can't just leave it to the system to work things out because, if the ultimate verdict of the, the criminal justice system is an acquittal, i.e. the offence is not proven, um, that can still have ramifications for the accused persons. I mean, everyone has a view on the Belfast rape trial. Uh, it was an, an, an inescapable and unavoidable news item for a very long time while the trial was continuing. The ultimate verdict of the jury who heard all the facts and all the legal arguments and were there in the room to observe the witnesses giving evidence, it was to acquit the accused. But Paddy Jackson and Stuart Olding still had to leave uh, Ireland um, to, in order to, to continue to play rugby, which was their living. And, and it's probably true to say that neither of them will ever play uh, international rugby for Ireland again as a result of the, uh, the trial. Whether you think that's a just outcome or not, Uh, entirely depends on on one's own personal point of view. And that really is the conundrum Mm -hmm. facing all the different players and all the different participants in the system, because everyone's got a view, everyone's got a stake, um, from uh, complainant to accused, to prosecutor, to investigator, um, and each will uh, advocate their position uh, with equal force, uh, as will the other. Uh,
1: I was interested, um, Maeve Lewis, in just looking at some of the other cross jurisdictional um, coverage, you know, of this particular topic. And I, I remember back at the time of the um, Jimmy Savile case, some of the victims, rights groups and campaigners in the UK talking about the fact that if you would could call it one of the benefits of naming the accused is that it might encourage other people to come forward, um, you know, in, in other cases. what's what's your view on that?
3: Oh, I have to say I have very mixed views, Andrea and um, I mean, I would go along with a lot of what Michael has just said. Um, I mean, you know, if we take the most recent case, actually, the Harvey Weinstein case, um, the fact that he was publicly accused long before the trial did encourage up to 100 other women actually to come forward. Now, because there is a statute of limitations in the states or in the state of New York, uh, most of those women weren't able to give evidence in court, so it does have that benefit. But to be accused of a sexual assault or a rape probably carries um, a burden on that person if it if the, if the person is not guilty um, that no other crime does even a murder. So so I would be very torn. Mm. I, I really. Um, you know, say at one and four, we uh, provide, or we offer, or deliver a, a an offend, a sex offender treatment program, and, you know, I see some of the young guys coming into our young offenders, eight, the eighteen to twenty five year olds, um, most of them have been guilty of downloading images of child abuse, uh, going on, perhaps, tweaked out on that. They're at the start of their lives. Their, um, their whole lives are going to be changed by their actions as teenagers, and. Uh, Part of me would wish that uh, they could remain anonymous, but in fact, most of them are going to be convicted because the proof will be there on their laptops and hard drives and so on. Um, So I, I think it's a very difficult one. In the main, though, I think probably it is best that people remain anonymous until they're convicted and that we certainly avoid the sort of perp walk that you see in the States okay. um, all the time.
1: Can, Shane comments can, can I just get you to clarify something for me just with regards to um, Anonymity. I mean, if I make a complaint in the morning and the go to the guards and the DBP decide to prosecution and we go before the courts, um, as the complainant, you know, I will remain anonymous, and and my um and the accused will will also remain anonymous. Then we have, for instance, a verdict and a sentence hearing, and at that point, after conviction, I can't just be the person to decide that I want my um now accused uh, accuser to be named in public. Though I mean. That's a decision in the hands of the judge.
2: It, it is, but uh, you can... Uh, so ordinarily what happens is that uh, at conviction stage, the, the Section 8 safeguard that applies to the accused no longer applies. But then the judge has a decision to make that in, in, in permitting the, the convicted party now to be named, will that have consequences for the complainant? So that's one of the first considerations. Will it have consequences? And in some instances, then a complainant might suggest, well, look, I'm happy, whatever the consequences, I would like this party to be named. So that, that's how that plays out. Actually, Andrea, one of the things that I thought I'd like to touch upon here, and mm-hmm. it was a point that was made by Maven, I think was a really good point, is that when we talk about reform of this area, um, so the Gillen report in Northern Ireland following the Belfast rape trial, it continues to hold the view that anonymity is not required for the accused party. Um, now, currently, that's under review in Ireland. But any of the submissions that I've seen, and you've heard, Maeve, um, the RC&I, and Nolien Blackwell, and the Bar Council of Ireland, they're all suggesting that, um, that, that uh, anonymity provision should be maintained. Um, in recognition, obviously, of the need to protect the complainants, As well, you know, so the provision relates to accused, but they're recognising that you know it's it's a it's a a better protection for complainants as well because Ireland is small and because of social media and so on. But there's also a recognition that you know the accusation itself is a very very serious one, and I think that uh, as it stands presently, um, we're we're very different to Northern Ireland in that regard, and we're also different to England and Wales. And it's uh, it's interesting that you know. it, reform has been suggested in England, Wales well, that we sh- they should have this provision, and in particular, yeah. Cliff Richard, I, the singer, has suggested you know that he felt that it was very unfair that the the complainant had an anonymity for life, and whereas you know the police turned up at his house, and from the outset, uh, uh, even prior to charge, it was known that an allegation was being made against him, and he was saying you know that it in effect uh, was uh, seriously damaging to his reputation and. Uh, and once it's out there you know that the allegation became almost more important as to, as to whether or not he had in fact uh, committed any offence at all um so i think that uh, the you know the the commentary in ireland has been has been very balanced on this okay. and uh, tom O'Malley's review is is been awaited and I'm, I'm i'm sure that um he will have very interesting things to say about that the provision on whether should be continue to exist for for those accused.
1: Just Michael Finucane, if I can bring you in. I suppose people listening to this as well today will be thinking, you know, aren't I entitled? Don't I have a right to my my good name?
0: You do uh, constitutionally protected, uh, and also there's the the very important uh, entitlement in in criminal proceedings that, that a person is obviously presumed innocent until proven guilty. But I think Shane is is really kind of cracking at the at the heart of the issue here because you have uh, an allegation um, in the real world, if you like, that's then coming into the criminal justice system and ultimately being uh, tested uh, before a court of law, which is not the real world. It's an artificial construct uh, that tests what people say and the response that is made in a way that doesn't really resemble what happens in real life. It's just the best approximation we have uh, according to the best and safest standards. And I do believe that the justice system works. It does work, provided everybody does their job the way they're supposed to do it to the best of their ability, with the resources that they need in order to be able to fulfill their role. Now, if you break down everything that I've just said there, it's easy to see where the gaps arise in the system and where the breakdowns occur. And I think that what is being proposed or what was proposed in the Gillen Review which was maintaining anonymity up to the point of charge. And
1: this is in Northern Ireland. In yes. Northern
0: Ireland. Uh, and then waving or, or sorry, removing the anonymity and putting an accused person in public on full view does not recognise uh, the real-world uh, feelings that often creep into the criminal justice system and that seem to creep into the, the justice system a lot more often in cases of uh, sexual assault and rape. Um, victims have been let down really badly by the quality of investigations in the past and the quality of decision-making by the prosecution authorities. That's happened in Ireland, it's happened in Britain, it's happened in America, it's happened everywhere. And you could just go on and follow through the various facets of the system and point out things that that are just not good enough. I mean, senior defence counsel during the Belfast rape case had to be warned on a number of occasions to stop asking questions of the victim in the way they were doing because this person was a vulnerable witness and did not need to be interrogated in the way counsel was doing. Now, that plays really well to the public gallery. And in some cases, and I'm not suggesting this is applicable to the Belfast trial, but in some cases defendants will insist that their counsel uh, robustly uh, interrogate the victim. Uh, But this doesn't have to happen. It doesn't need to happen. Uh, if every other aspect of the system is working correctly. And I think we need to ensure that all of those aspects are working correctly before we take a step uh, as serious as take it, as removing the anonymity, because it was put there for a good reason in the first place.
1: Can I just bring you in, Maeve Lewis, just on some of those points?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think Michael is absolutely right. Um, most of our clients who end up um, in a criminal trial and in fact, for many people the, 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 at various stages, the, the, the case drops uh, going through the system due to perhaps lack of evidence, whatever. But at the end of the day, uh, a trial of sexual offence really comes down to the credibility of the complainant witness, usually or very rarely is there forensic evidence um, or very rarely are there witnesses. So Michael is right, the defence. Um, Take the view that what they need to do is absolutely undermine the credibility of the complainant, to undermine their character, their their life history, other things they may have done, um, so as to convince the jury that actually this person is not credible, um, and that everything is also
1: that that, that I would and correct me if I'm wrong. I would have thought that was in place to test the veracity of the of the allegation. I mean to afford a protection to the. Accused as well to ensure that if they're going to be convicted of a crime like rape or serious sexual assault, that you know the the, the allegation in its entirety is 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 teased out.
3: That's perfectly reasonable. But um, is it reasonable to, for example, dive into somebody's past sexual history? Is it reasonable um, to tear apart counselling notes? Is it reasonable um if somebody, for example, has had a mental health issue or something, that is trumped around the court and they're, I mean, most of our clients would say that after the trial that they feel dehumanised, they feel mm-hmm. re-traumatised and many of them say, even with a conviction, that they wish they'd never gone to the Gorthy in the first place. And I
1: know that's something we talked about actually only on this programme quite recently with regards to sexual assault cases um, with the likes of the Rape Crisis Network, Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and indeed with yourselves that the importance and the significance of having a support mechanism in place for complainants um, going through a trial like
3: and, and I mean... Um, Um, Because of a new EU directive, we now have a Victims of Crime Act, which actually places on statute a victim's right to have support during a a trial of, um, well in fact during any trial, any Mm. criminal trial, but from our point of view, uh, during a trial of sexual offences. It's absolutely crucial and to anybody out there considering engaging with the criminal justice system, I would absolutely advise them to make sure to contact a support service such as one in four or one of the rape crisis centres. Not to go it alone. Um, It's just far too difficult.
1: Okay, we do just have to take a very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be back with more from News Talk's Between the Lines programme in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to the second part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself Andrea Gilligan On today's programme we're discussing the law and anonymity We're asking whether the protections offered to victims are appropriate and we're asking should anonymity be offered to those who carry out the most heinous crimes My panel in studio still with us today the uh, Chief Executive of One and Four Maeve Lewis Solicitor Michael Finucane and on the line from the University of Limerick is uh, Law Professor Shane Kilcommons. I just want to go back to a point that we mentioned um, just before the break, and it's in relation to people who make compl- uh, m- make a, um, a complaint or an allegation of sexual abuse or, or a rape case. It goes to trial, um, in some cases as well, Mike F- Michael Michael Finucane, people can often be left very disappointed if the judge orders that they aren't allowed, for instance, to to waive their right to anonymity, and and that can we've as we've seen before in some cases that can actually come as um, a shock to people who've who've gone through the trial. With a view to getting justice themselves and in some cases wanting their um the accused to be named, and then to find out that actually that may not happen,
0: yes. Uh, it, it does come as a shock and, and, and a recent case reported in the newspapers uh, raised that very point. Um, the the question of anonymity though, I- I- is one that is, I think, more nuanced um, than perhaps just the complainant uh, seeking to publish. Uh, or have published the the name of the in, in that case in that case I mentioned um, now a convicted person because the ramifications of removing anonymity affect so many other people mm. and it's in those circumstances that a judge is faced with a difficult decision um, but a decision can be reached which won't always keep everybody happy uh, but it can be reached if all the relevant facts and all the relevant information are put before the court uh, and everyone is entitled to. Uh, put forward their particular point of view on what they think the correct decision ought to be. Um, the, 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 the very difficult uh, thing about um, crimes of, of a sexual nature is that uh, by simply changing one element in the equation, um, you, you can have huge effects uh, on a, a different, uh, a different part of the system, or a different part of the equation, further down the line. I mean, it, it is often, and you raised the point yourself, uh, Andrea, earlier. It is often uh, a point of serious contention uh, in in the criminal process that uh, a victim or a, a complainant's uh, uh, past sexual history should come under scrutiny um, in uh, in the course of a criminal trial uh, in in a rape case or case of serious uh, sexual assault. Now. Let's say that was removed. Well, if you removed it for the complainant, then you would have to remove it also uh, for the defendant, uh, and they couldn't be subject to that same scrutiny. And yet one might argue that it was that very scrutiny uh, that persuaded a jury to return guilty verdicts against Harvey Weinstein because his past activity was put under scrutiny in the New York courtroom. So you can see when you start to look at the system in the round how doing one thing may have an unintended effect further down the line. And it may even prevent somebody uh, like Harvey Weinstein, a very powerful public figure, uh, from facing justice in, in the same way as everybody else.
3: may Lewis? Yeah, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, for example, in the Irish criminal justice system, uh, the fact that uh, an accused person, for example, has previous convictions cannot be um, introduced into the trial until perhaps sentencing where the person has been convicted and sentencing. So, I, do, I mean, I, what happened to Harvey Weinstein, uh, that, I don't think that could happen in this country. For example, because of um, the constitutional protection of the media in the States, there were a huge number of articles in the New York Times and in the New Yorker and so on, which blew the whole thing apart. Um, in a way, it's amazing that that case ever got to trial uh, because public opinion had been formed long before the jury ever heard the facts of the, the two women um, who were who mm. were the subjects of the case. Um, I mean, but they're, they're you know, I, I do feel in the constitutionally in Ireland, there are huge priorities given to the rights of the accused person. And of course, we all want a fair trial and due process to be yeah. there. But from the perspective of supporting victims of sexual crimes in court, very often it seems to me and indeed to the victims of those crimes that the others stacked against them okay Do you know i mean literally about half the cases um where we support clients every year and we support about 35 clients through the criminal just or through it through criminal trials um about half of them there are not guilty verdicts because the case simply can't be proven. It is so difficult to prove sexual crimes and, you know, that can be devastating for people.
1: And we've talked about that actually on this programme as well and in, in a separate uh, show just with regards to the I suppose the importance and significance of, of going and reporting an instance like this um, effectively really immediately once it happens. Mm. And we, we spoke to um, the head of the... Rotunda's sexual assault unit, you know, in, in terms of the, the significance of evidence gathering. Um, Schenkel comments just a point that was mentioned there with regards to kind of the shining the the, the light on social media um, and perhaps as well just in general in the media, I suppose one of the things that comes up time and time again is the fact that although somebody may have their anonymity post-trial that can often be taken away from them um, by the hands of third and fourth parties on the likes of social media. But there are penalties there in place for people who do that.
2: Well, actually, that's a really interesting question, Andrea. And so when I was looking at the provision, um, section seven and eight of the 1981 Act, it prohibits written publications or, and it also uh, prohibits broadcasting of any matter likely to identify the complainant or the um, the, the accused in such cases. So it obviously covers um, the broadcast media and the print media. But the real question is, does it cover the social media? Now, you, to be fair, the legislation was introduced in 1981. And actually, in looking at it, I think it's very interesting in the sense that, you know, it's probably one of the first legislative pr- provisions in this country which ever made an accommodation, a legal accommodation for victims of crime back in 1981. And you can actually follow that through then as to what's happened in cases, and the courts have been also helpful in this regard in expanding rights for victims of crime, the DPP versus Tiernan in 1988, another case on JT, the 1990 Act, Criminal Evidence Act 1992, and victim impact statements in 1993. And you can actually trace it through to this week, the Graeme Dwyer judgment, where the Chief Justice spoke about the need to consider those in the light of a victim's right uh, well, first to life, but also to have an inve- uh, a proper investigation. So it's actually wonderful that we're beginning to see, you know, victims' rights and so on slowly and incrementally, but being recognized. And I think that that anonymity provision that we've been discussing was one of the first in this country. But to co- the key point that I think that's interesting around the social media is, I'm not sure, and I haven't seen any case on this, so I'm not sure if social media is covered by the provisions as they currently stand, which is not surprising given that it was introduced in 1981. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's two ways of looking at social media. So it can be both negative for complainants and the accused parties. Um, and on the other hand, um, you know, the social media have also allowed, you know, engagement with the, with the public sphere uh, through, we'll say, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube or hashtag hand- handles. And it's advantage that it is open. It is accessible. It allows people to organize. It can change our, the public interest perceptions of crime. But on the other side, there's also a, a difficulty with the social media is that you need to be really careful because it can be unbounded. And, it, you know, it does have the possibility of engaging in, you know, being, being populist-pleasing, but also has self-promoting dimensions. Yes. And one of the big difficulties that I see with social media, and, and, um, and I'm sure Michael could speak to this as well, but around the Belfast uh, rape trials was some of the inaccuracies that actually occurred in that case. And so, for example, on the one hand, uh, you know, when when the acquittal verdict was returned, people would say, pro the accused view, argue that, well, that demonstrated that they didn't believe the the complainant. And that's not necessarily the case. The verdict that was returned was, was, was not guilty. They may have believed the complainant, but just not to the standard of proof necessary. But the flip side is also true. Some people also argue that not guilty does not equal innocent. And again, technically... That's also not necessarily true because the only verdict that can be returned is a guilty or not guilty verdict. There is no possibility of returning mm. an innocent verdict. And so, so you know, there's always the dangers with that. And I think that, um, I think one of the things that with social media accounts is that they don't always accept that, you know, conflict resolutions in our criminal courts are based decidedly on legal materials, which then apply to facts. Um, and that. So those legal materials are, are necessary. They're part of a, kind of a unified or, order. They're not necessarily perfect, but it's, it's based on the application of rules to facts, which are not based on predictions, negotiations, beliefs or opinions. They're actually based on application of rules to, to facts. And the third issue I think that's really important is that it's also recognition. And has uh, alluded to this as well, as the system for 150 years has recognized accused rights. It's beginning to recognize victims' rights as as a competing interest, and that's good and necessary, but it doesn't mean that we should throw out the rights of the accused, and particularly rights such as the presumption of innocence, and that it continues to apply post-acquittal.
1: That's a really interesting point, Michael, and just to pick up on that and something else that Shane mentioned there, I mean, often the public may not be aware of the actual question that the judge would ask the jury to consider before going to deliberate, and as Shane mentioned, you know, in certain cases, as you said yourself, socially and in social media People can often have a very different interpretation of what they think a verdict means.
0: Yes, they do. Um, I mean that that kind of highlights something I was saying earlier that I mean the legal the, the criminal justice system is not the real world. Uh, it attempts to apply a level of precision and analysis that simply doesn't exist in ordinary life. Uh, we don't live in a perfect world, but the courtroom tries to create a something approaching a perfect scenario. Um, and that is not to say that it's a Uh, an unreasonable or an artificial way of going about business because social media shows us on a daily basis that an awful lot of what you read is wrong if it isn't wrong it's probably inaccurate Uh, and if it isn't inaccurate then it's probably just opinion and you can't you can't accuse someone based on opinion you can't prosecute them based on inaccuracy it has to be done uh, according to reliable evidence properly admissible before a jury and a legally qualified judge, and then proven beyond reasonable doubt. And as I said, mm-hmm. as I said earlier as well, if that system works properly and everyone does their jobs the way they're supposed to do, well then the system works. Insofar as it's possible to create a system in any sphere of life, health, education, you know, law, whatever, uh, that can cover all the different many situations, big, small, wide, thin, um, that, that, that confront yeah. us. But the other thing, I mean, and, you know, in, in the Belfast case, uh, the complainant, and I, and I use the word complainant quite deliberately um, because I think the accuracy of, of that sort of terminology maybe needs to be emphasised a little more. Um, the complainant in the Belfast rape case was the victim of an horrendous experience. But rape was not proven. She did have to go through uh, an extraordinarily uh, traumatic uh, prosecution. Uh, Her identity was not protected because social media circulated her name and her photograph. Her underwear was circulated in the court. Um, She had to stand up and accuse uh, some very high profile people. And, you know, what bothers me about those types of cases most of all is that while some people, some women may gain strength from her making her complaint or the accusers in the Harvey Weinstein making their complaint or other people making their complaints against high profile people, many other victims of, her, of, of violent sexual experiences will be put off by those very same circumstances because they will say, if that's what I have to go through, just to get like into the courtroom, and, I'm, and, and, and I I'm, can't be guaranteed a verdict, nor should they be, but you know, just mm. to get to the courtroom, no thanks. Okay. And a very sorry, if I could just finish with this. No less than the former DPP for England and Wales, Keir Starmer, who's now running for the, leader of the leadership of the Labour Party, wrote a brilliant article uh, for the Guardian some years ago, and. His experience of talking to victims in sexual crimes uh, was almost unanimously that they were asked, people who were asked, uh, uh, would you go through the experience again? And he he put it in the article and he, he put it in the article deliberately, uh, I think, to create the impact of the answer that he consistently got from, from complainants. It was no thanks. Well, Maeve And Lewis, we really do need to learn from that. Yeah,
1: just yeah. on that particular point. I mean, I'm sure that's something you hear time and time again. Oh, absolutely.
3: I mean, I've I've rarely met somebody who has been through a criminal trial um, mm-hmm. as a complainant witness, regardless of the outcome, even if there's a guilty plea, even if there's a jury verdict um, uh, of conviction, who would say that if they had known what they were going through. And I mean, the, the truth is the Guardi have managed to completely reform, not totally, but a long way down the road to reform how they deal with complaints and, and they can deal with it in a very sensitive and professional manner. Our clients generally have a very good experience of the Gore. The, the DPP has changed the way they do their business uh, because, for example, now they will explain why they've made a decision not to prosecute. But the courts remain as archaic as they were. Happily, as Shane has said, um, the law, for example, the Victims of Crime Act and so on are beginning to rebalance uh, the entire system. And to give some protection to witnesses, particularly in these types of crimes, but it is still a harrowing experience to go through a criminal trial as a complainant witness.
1: Oh, okay, you're listening to News Talks Between the Lines program. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment.
0: Between the lines
1: on News Talk. You're welcome back to the final part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're discussing the law and anonymity and asking whether the protections offered to victims here in this country are appropriate. I just want to pick up on a point that was mentioned at the very start of the programme today. Um, Shane Kilcumins, I might just ask you first of all, is it wrong that young young offenders who get, that they continue to get anonymity when the lives of those that they've hurt or maybe in some cases murdered or killed they obviously don't get to keep theirs that
2: um that is a difficulty um the but the system is still designed and orientated towards uh, protecting young people and it's um, obviously it's it's really unfortunate when you know a, a young person or anyone um, is is a victim of, of a crime of, of that kind but it's also I think uh, Necessary for the state to recognise that these people are often very young, very vulnerable, uh, have not reached maturity, and uh, we do need to have systems and protections in place that um, that bring them through the process. Now, um, and I think this was referred to earlier by by Michael. Mm-hmm. The the presumption is that uh, you know anybody under the age of twelve uh, cannot commit an offence. That's a a very uh, low threshold. In fact, it can go as low as 10. Um, And so, you know, it is a a recognition. I mean, children cannot or shouldn't be subject to the courts below that age. But it's also, um, I, I think it's also a fairly low threshold and i think that it is appropriate that there is protections in place such as an anonymity for children um as as they go through the process and not just anonymity it's also important that you know that they're, if they're arrested or detained that their parents or guardians are there with them that they are separated out from a, a, adults uh, a, a accused um um of of crimes um and that as they go through the system then that you know that the, the provisions that apply giving evidence by TV link and so on. I, I think that is really important for children. And I think that we that we it would be remiss of us not to recognise that that uh, they are still the children and they may have committed uh, you know outrageous crimes, but still the system should afford them proper protections as they go through the system.
1: Can I perhaps maybe just ask you, uh, Michael, as well, just in relation to that? I mean, effectively, if you're under 18 in this country and you commit a crime, irrespective really of the, the crime that you commit your identity is protected by our, lo- our our laws here, our legislation, and that's with thanks to the Children's Act. I mean, is it a fair system?
0: <laughs> is anonymity fair, or is it a fair system?
1: Well, just, I mean, the children... The, the <laughs> We're chi- going the, in two the, very the, different directions. Just, with, with the, 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 the children are always afforded anonymity irrespective of the crime. Well, let, let's take
0: as our starting point the age of criminal responsibility. I mean, in this country it's 12. Um, but... In other countries, it goes much higher um, because, again, the view of the view of society is that um, children remain children up to a, a, a higher age. Um, why do ch- children end up in the criminal justice system? It's not because they're inherently bad. Uh, it's because of environment. It's because of family. It's because of mental illness. It's because of Sometimes peer or social pressure. It's because of drug addiction. It's because of all sorts of things. Uh, very often a combination of of many. And you know, it's no, it's no coincidence. Uh, and I'm I I know people listening to this are gonna sort of start banging their radios and talking about the bleeding heart liberal. But I mean, it's no coincidence um, that children from the most socially deprived areas in 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 this city and in every other city or, or, or country across the world, end up before the courts with a vastly more uh, frequent uh, regularity uh, than people from affluent areas who come from families that aren't dysfunctional, um, who, who aren't being subjected to domestic violence or home drug okay. abuse on a daily basis, who's, you know, who are surrounded by people who are encouraging and helpful and read books and, and give them the supports they need. I mean, and, you know, then you end up in the Irish criminal justice system, um, which is better than some, uh, but still has an awfully long way to go in terms of, of treating young people. Um, Anonymity is about the best thing you can expect, frankly. Uh, you know, the, uh, are, are the support services there? No, by and large, they aren't. The Gardaí have done really good work in developing their juvenile diversion scheme. But, I mean, they're one agency. Uh, trying their best to divert young people out of a criminal justice system, which any anybody in the, who works in that field will tell you is not a criminal justice system. When it comes to kids, it's an academy. It's how to teach you to be a better criminal and not to get caught okay. the next time.
1: Can I ask you, Maeve Lewis, just on that point? I mean, I'm just thinking of people who are perhaps, you know, the parents of, the brothers, the sisters, the family members, the cousins, the friends, the neighbours of a young person, a young child who was killed or murdered or, you know, sustained an incredibly horrific attack. Um, Perhaps another child, a minor, goes before the courts, is found guilty of that crime. They go through, as Michael said, you know, um, a juvenile detention system or, you you know, they they spend some time in rehabilitation. But their victim, perhaps, maybe in this case, has been killed. And the child who actually carried out this act will remain anonymous forever. Nobody will ever know who they are. They'll you serve the sentence and they'll mingle back into society and, and nobody will ever be any the wiser.
3: Yeah, I think it's very complex. Um, But I think most people will recognise um, that there is an age of criminal responsibility. Most people will recognise, as Michael has said, that not always, but very often and usually, um, children who commit really serious crimes are often have been struggling with the level of deprivation, lack of support and so on. Um, and and that's important that that is recognised within our system. And that I suppose, too, there is um, an idea that the possibility of rehabilitation is perhaps greater for younger uh, offenders um, than others. The flip side of that is for children who've been victims of crime, for example, children who've been victims of child sexual abuse, very often they have a very rocky road through the criminal justice system. Um, Figures show, for example, it can take up to five years for a case to come before the courts, at which point many of the people who've been victims have actually aged out of the protections that are there for children. So, for example, somebody who was 13 when they were sexually assaulted, sexually abused, will now be 18 and will not have, for example, immediate access to things like um, video links and so on when they're giving okay. their evidence. Uh, so that's that's the other side of that. There's a lot of um I suppose, a lot of challenges there in the criminal justice system as it applies to children, both people who are accused of crimes but also people who are victims of crimes.
1: Can I ask you all just maybe to finish today um, on a point? I know, Shane Cummins, just in your, in your own professional academic work at University of Limerick, I, I'm sure you look at a lot of other jurisdictions, but just by way of comparison overall, do we fare well here in terms of how we're served in relation to this area and the uh, current legislation that we have?
2: I think that you know, since the 1970s, the Irish justice system has began, has started to move. And I think that you're seeing it through legislative provisions like the 1981 Act as an example. But, you know, that's just one of the issues that we've addressed, you know, legislation around corroboration, around um, uh, victim impact statements, um, around the use of TV link evidence um, and so on. Uh, all of that has been moving. And w- I think one of the things that's kind of strong, and that's the reason I was kind of pointing out the Chief Justice Clark's uh, uh, decision in the Graham Dwyer case, is that increasingly it is being recognised that an effective uh, criminal justice process does have to recognise victims' rights and that, are, that proper investigations are, are, are necessary to uphold their rights. Um, so, and now it's it's it's... We're, we're still at the cusp of that in the sense that we're, we're moving into that terrain after 150 years of a state versus accused model. But I do think, in general, that the constitutional rights that exist here, the way they're being interpreted by the courts, which increasingly includes um, the, the, the victim of crime, and it's the same in the European Convention of Human Rights that traditionally, when these rights were, you know, these um, conventions were established, uh, they. Safeguards only applied to to those accused of crime, but increasingly we're we're interpreting the relevant provisions around privacy, bodily integrity, life and so on, as to to include victims of crime. I think that that is all very positive. Mm -hmm. I still think there are lots of difficulties and challenges, particularly around under-reporting, particularly around delays in the system and so on, but I do think, um, as far as systems go, I think the, the criminal justice system in Ireland um, is 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 not in the worst of places, if that makes any sense. And all the time, they're they're uh, seeking to reform it to accommodate uh, victims.
1: Michael Flukin. I uh, I I
0: think the framework uh, and the system within which we all work uh, is generally speaking uh, pretty good. Uh, I think it measures up quite well um, when compared with other jurisdictions. Uh, I certainly wouldn't. Uh, in any way uh, commend the American system uh, having having seen what we've all just seen over the last number of weeks, but even in you know less newsworthy cases uh, where where a, a person simply has to go before a, a court um, in, in that system I, I, I think the experience you know and I use the word advisedly uh, is better uh, in Ireland. What I do think though is that um, more real world, uh, focus uh, needs to happen here. I think the I think the the, the feelings um, that we experience in Ireland uh, with people who who make complaints of, of serious sexual violence um, happen because of a lack of resources, uh, because of a lack of training, uh, because of a lack of oversight, um, and because of a lack of follow through. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't think it's any coincidence uh, that in this country, you know, the the foremost organisations uh, like One in Four and like the Rape Crisis uh, Network are not state organizations when it comes to helping victims. Um, they're private organizations that were set up on the, on the initiative of, of citizens. And I think that's where it needs to change. Um, the state needs to take more responsibility for how things work uh, and making sure that they, they are capable of doing the job that they're designed to do.
1: And just finally, a final word to you, Mivlos. You
3: know, I'd agree with Shane and Michael, uh, compared to other jurisdictions, our system is not the worst. But I would actually question uh, when it comes to uh, cases of sexual, uh, sexual offences, um, is the adversarial system that we operate under the best is it perhaps something we should consider the more European system of an inquisitorial system or something for these types of cases uh, which may reduce the the um, the trauma of complainants going through the system? I'd also say, though, that no system is going to work properly while attitudes to sexual crimes remain as they are. So there is still a great attribution of blame, I think, to victims of sexual crime. And as Michael has said, there's a huge need for training of all the... the criminal justice professionals, but also, um, and this was a recommendation in the Gillan report, that judges would give instructions to juries, for example, uh, taking apart some of the stereotypes and myths that exist around sexual crimes when they come to their deliberations. And I think that would be very helpful.
1: Really interesting conversation today. My thanks to you all for your time. The um, CEO of One and Four, Maeve Lewis, uh, law professor at UL, Shane Kilcummins. My thanks to you for joining us on the line today and also in studio, solicitor Michael Finucane. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on our website or on the Go Live app. My thanks to the production team, Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from six and with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day.